There is nothing for the young in this country that can attract them or us unless it's the vision of progress for the future. You're listening to Watercooler, produced by the Menzies Research Centre in Sydney. I'm Nick Cater, Senior Fellow at the Centre and Economist with The Australian. Joining me in the co-host chair is Freya Leach. Welcome, Freya. Welcome. Yeah, welcome to you too and to Louise. It's a pleasure to be here today. In this podcast and in the True Believers series as a whole, we're doing something really exciting and really big. We are going through each of Robert Menzies' 17 We Believe statements and critically examining them, looking at whether they fit 21st century Australia, should they be retained, revised or rejected. And that is what we're going to do for the first statement today, which is all about the crown. Let's have a listen to it, shall we? We believe in the crown as the enduring embodiment of our national unity and as the symbol of that unity and as the symbol of that other unity that exists between all nations of the British Commonwealth. All right, let's start by putting our cards on the table. Lou, where do you sit in the Republican debate? Well, look, there's no Republican debate really at the moment, Nick, but I can divulge that in 1999 I voted yes to a Republic. But it's a little bit more nuanced than that for me. I then, and still am now, I suppose, a minimalist Republican. I said then, and I would say now, that I would walk over hot coals to stop a directly elected president. And look, that debate was a debate that occurred in a very different era, far less polarised, and with a different sentiment, I think, towards the Crown then than it exists now. So things have evolved And if you want to know where I sit now, I think because in theory I take the view that any political office, including a head of state, should probably not depend on birthright. I'm still in theory a minimalist Republican, but I don't think we'll see a minimalist model ever put to the Australian people if we do have something put to the Australian people. So Freya, where did you, where, which way did you vote in the 1999 uh, well, Three years before my birth, I was <laughs> definitely voting no. <laughs> Look, perhaps this is a function of my age, but I think I'm still a bit undecided on the whole republic versus monarchy debate. And that's part of the reason why I'm so excited for our conversation today, because I really think, and between the two of you, we'll hear both sides of the argument, which I'm quite excited about. I think I'd probably as a kind of natural conservative lean towards retaining a constitutional monarchy purely because I'm unsure about whether we would be able to actually implement a minimalist Republican. What you were talking about, Louise, is that possible? Can we reconstruct our system in this way? But what about you, Nick? What do you think? I'm a slower learner than Louise because I voted yes for Republic in 1999 and I was a bit older than you, I think, Lou, so I don't have the excuse of youth. But I suppose I was actually a rampant Republican in Britain. Really? I just couldn't get over this idea of an inherited position like that. The inheritance of it and the lack of fairness, the lack of what seemed to me a lack of egalitarianism that worried me about it. But I think that just shows what a slow learner I was. And now I'm very firmly on the, the side of retaining a constitutional monarchy and I feel a great sense of gratitude, I guess to God, ultimately, that we had somebody like Queen Elizabeth II to rule over us in such a a 
traumatic and dramatic period of Australian of world history in terms of the cultural change. We were lucky for that stability, and I feel that the transition to Charles III has been wonderful so far. So I put my cards on the table anyway. <laughs> then let's move on. Let's move on. Where do we go next, Fro? So if we look at the We Believe statement, it starts with We Believe in the Crown, but it's not really talking about it's more suggesting the crown represents something, which is it's a symbol of our national unity. So I guess the question is, in constitutional terms, what is that something that we're talking about that's the symbol of national unity? Are we talking about the head of state or what is it? I think that depends on whether you're a monarchist mm-hmm. or a republican. I think for a hardcore monarchist reading that statement that we believe in the crown, it really is the crown and you couldn't substitute it with anything else. I think that that just has to be accepted. The question is, I suppose, whether we as liberals should or could modify that to satisfy a broader church within the Liberal Party or for Liberal supporters, then I think you could, but then you need a head of state that has that same sort of allure and really the reason that the the queen the late great queen had that that positive reputation and the reason everyone respected her so much was that in the end she was very committed you could see to not exercising any political power she restrained and refrained from doing that and so all of her actions were symbolic And when you have someone with that sort of grace and courage and sensitivity and wisdom sitting on the crown for that long, I think then there's so many people who look to that and say, that's what we want in a leader. Now, you could never get that in a political leader. And that's the wonderful thing about having a head of state, including a monarch, who has that kind of allure. It's the fact that they don't exercise political power, don't get down into the weeds and therefore can and can be more appealing and rise above politics. I think the word disinterest comes to my mind. I, I, quick story, when I was first entered the BBC as a trainee studio manager, after three months I had an assessment and they ripped shreds out of me. The, the supervisor said, you know your problem, Nick? You're disinterested in the studio. And I said, because I just seemed to be not interested in the programme, I said, no, you mean un- uninterested. Uninterested. Uninterested means you're not taking any interest disinterest means that you're neutral and he said why should I take grammatical corrections from a sociology undergraduate I don't know I said it's not actually grammatical it's semantic isn't it but anyway that's my story well, well that's a great story because those two words are very, very they have very different meanings they do um, and, and of course the queen and the king obviously incredibly interested people in what goes on and they show that again and again through their actions but disinterest is a very good word and that's I think what is critical to any ongoing, whether we maintain a constitutional monarchy or if we did become a republic with a head of state, we need to maintain that disinterest with the head of state so that engagement in political affairs is not there. And so our system, as we know it, and as, which works pretty well, remains largely intact. And in, in over a, a century and a quarter almost since the constitution came into force with federation, there's not been, to my knowledge, a single example of the crown overstepping the mark and becoming interested in our political civic affairs as opposed to disinterested. Some people will obviously point to the dismissal, but I think 
a balance of the documentary evidence shows that the Queen's involvement was quite remote. So it's worked well. It works well, which is, for us as Conservatives, I think a good reason not to jump in and change it. Yes. No, I agree with that. And if it's a... I'm interested to hear what you think about this. If it's a self... So if you have to nominate yourself to be the head of state under a republic model, could you truly ever be disinterested? Because you've already taken the active step to want to be it. And for me, there's something comforting about the fact that a monarch never chooses to be a monarch. They're almost thrust into that position. And it's they are totally subservient to that role. The role becomes them. They sacrifice themselves to that. So what do you think about that? I have sympathy to the view of the absolutist monarchist. That that is the whole point, that but that there is this person at the head of our system of government, which is entirely there because of who they are, and therefore not only in theory, not is in theory and in practice not related to politics. Mm. So I have sympathy for that. It's just that I feel that in Australia going forward, our level of connection to the English crown to the British monarch is lower and lower, except, look, I used to think that very strongly in 1999. I think things have changed a bit because Queen Elizabeth, of course, only improved as she got older, became wiser, more disinterested, and just became a symbol of how to conduct oneself as a leader. And so I think and in a sense, the younger monarchs are quite glamorous and they um, they're, they look like movie stars, or some of them do, and they're, so we've got, a, we've got a different style of monarchy now, which I think is just broadly more appealing to everybody, particularly, I might say, when politics has become more and more toxic, if you like, or polarised. And so I do think that will be a problem for Republicans going forward. Yeah, but let me come back. I've got, I've got difficulties in both directions on this. So the statement talks about the enduring embodiment of our national unity and as a symbol of that unity. I get the point. I think you made this earlier, Freya, before we started the podcast. We've, how do we deal with the fact that it's, it, we have a non-Australian citizen, very recognisably British, as a symbol of our national unity? I, I think that's what's worrying, worrying for some people, right? I'll come back and answer that in a minute, but I'm interested to hear your point of view. I'm still thinking. <laughs> well, I think that's you've just said it in a way that was better than way that what I just tried to express, I think, Nick. That is the problem, and that is why you will find in Australia there are Republicans who say as time goes by, more and more time goes by, the Crown seems more and more remote. Now, in Menzies' era, that first statement that we're talking about did not seem, did not jar. But I think for a lot of people, that now jars. They, there's just no real connection to Britain and to the monarchy for multicultural, diverse Australia. This is my explanation. So the, the term Great Britain, the idea of Britishness, is really a late invention, and it doesn't describe a country. Crucially, it describes a union of England, Scotland, Ireland and Wales. And... I think that when Menzies talked about Britishness, indeed people of his generation did, I don't think they meant loyalty to that particular patch of damp island off the coast of Europe, right? They meant the British, the idea of Britishness. And so values. And values. So it's the things that we inherited. And I think we'd all agree. I, think, I don't think we're going to have any problem with this with any liberal, that the tradition 
the values and institutions we inherited from Britain, the Westminster system, the rule of law, egalitarianism, the idea that the ruler is not above the law, all these things, right, Magna Carta, the whole lot. Those are crucial to who we are, and it means that we naturally have an affinity to the UK, but indeed other countries in what we call the Anglosphere, the America, Canada, New Zealand, probably Hong Kong as it used to be, it could go on. But that, that, so that, that's where I think if we could, it's a difficult thing to persuade people of, and I'm even struggling to persuade myself, but the idea of Britishness as being separate from the idea of some tribal loyalty to the country, which we probably wrongly called Britain, probably the United Kingdom is what it should be. So I think what you're talking about there, though, when you really unpack it, is there's a commitment to institutions and to conventions and all the things that come with Britishness and the Crown. So I find myself in the same boat. I'm very committed to all of those institutions. I really appreciate the way they've evolved and the elegant sort of system we've ended up with, which has, you know, has worked so well in the last sort of hundred years, couple of hundred years. It just it is until now it's kept getting better, I think. We could have a debate on another day about whether we're reaching over the precipice at the moment on that. But the institutions and the institutional values, norms, conventions have served us and are serving us well still. I think before we jumped on camera, you were discussing sort of the Bill of Rights and how that means that young people, when they're growing, they they become educated on those rights and freedoms that are codified in the Bill of Rights. Would it not be a similar thing with the monarchy, though, an appreciation for these institutions and the system that's given rise to modern Australia, if it's not captured in the constitutional monarch, do we risk losing some of those? Look, that's a great question. But I've always had to be in my bonnet that Australian school children and even Australian university students don't learn about those foundational political values that are inherent and are the things that keep our system working well. Americans, American school children, Americans generally have a much better understanding of the way their constitution works and the fundamental political values and their personal political rights because largely because they have a Bill of Rights, not just, but largely I think that's a big contributor. I think that there are there are obviously benefits and weaknesses to having a Bill of Rights, but the benefit of having a Bill of Rights is its educational value. We don't have that. So I think you say, does a monarch substitute for that? We haven't done very well so far at utilising the monarch and that that British history the sort of evolution of British liberties, which is actually where the American Bill of Rights came from. We haven't done very well in Australia about in, 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 the, in educating our population about that. But if we could do that, I think that would be a great thing. I think we need to do more of it. I suppose what we're wrestling with is this clause in there as a centre of a symbol of national unity, as the embodiment of national unity. I think that's where we're tripping up a bit. So we're, we're wrestling, right? Like we we can get that it's a very neat and stable and very happy arrangement that we've come up with. That the monarch is effectively a part of the parliament, but deputises that authority to the the governor general. It's worked brilliantly, we think. But that clause does jar. For a lot of Australians. Yeah, so my suggestion is if we're going to go the revised route on this clause, then we would have to say, okay, we've got to separate that bit out. We can happily find a place for what we think of the Queen and what we think of constitutional monarchy, 
Parliament, the Westminster system, all those things, we can incorporate those. But let's make our focus on national unity, which we must have somewhere else. Is that kind of going to where we're going to head to? I think if this project is about modernising Robert Menzies and the future of the Liberal Party, I think probably yes is the answer. There are many good Liberals who are Republicans and for whom that jars, not as much, I think, as people who aren't Liberal and who are more progressive, but it still jars for some. So I do think I do think that is that clause should be or could be rewritten to accommodate a modern Australia. I think we've got to do something, haven't we, Freya? Because I, I think yeah. you, you, I know that, that your people, fellow Liberals that you know, but I know plenty that would uh, are going to have trouble accepting the Queen. I think one of the questions when we talk about national unity, what does that actually mean? What are we unified around? And I think I do, in this sense, see a role for a republic because I think that if you have an Australian head of state who is disinterested in Australian politics but highly interested in our nation, you could it could actually bolster Australia's sort of national identity Mm. and sense of sovereignty, perhaps that's not the right word, distinct national identity as its own nation. And perhaps that could be good for national unity because it gives us something more to be unified around. Mm. I don't know. It's just a thought. What do you think of that, Nick? Yeah, I do. I was going to bring up another problem I've got, another difficulty which pushes me to the other side of the equation. So, it's the crown, right? The word is the crown. It's not the queen, the king or whatever, even though I think in our constitution, Lou, I think it remains the case, doesn't it? It is the queen, but there's a clause at the top that says... There is a clause outside the constitution in the original act that says it just is whoever happens to be sitting. But nonetheless, that idea of the crown. And so I guess what I'm saying is we want whatever we're putting in as this something, that's the thing that holds the glue, it's the glue that holds the whole constitution together and the country together what i want its pronoun to be it not he or she if you get my meaning like we want to say the crown is something which is enduring because it endures as we've seen it, it carries on beyond the life of any particular monarch if we take the crown out of there and try to put in the idea of a president or something. The president is not enduring, is he? He's got he's got the allotted time on earth and that. Yeah. But I think the broader problem, Nick, is with the whole clause because I think it's not a question of just whether or not you like or approve of the crown. It's the proposition that the crown is the enduring embodiment of our national unity. I just don't think that's the case anymore. I don't... There's, there would be so few Australians that agree with that, whether they voted yes or no in a Republican referendum. It actually is just not what the vast majority of Australians think anymore. That's the problem, I think. That's right, isn't it, Frank? We've just seen with the ABC's enormously controversial Mm. coverage of the coronation from the point of view of not only a Republican but a Republican who believes in Aboriginal sovereignty, I guess, that clearly it is not the symbol of national unity. If anything, it's a point, it's a sort of touch point for division, isn't it? Having said that, though, I think that the backlash against the ABC for their coverage of the coronation is indicative that perhaps the Crown does still remain as a sort of key institution that people look to. One of the challenges when we get rid of institutions is what do we replace it with? And I think that a lot of people 
especially, and I'm thinking about my generation, and we were reflecting on this before the podcast, saying that my parents' generation or your generation is probably a lot more pro-republic than younger people are. Because I think there's a bit of a sense that it's a nice story to be a part of. It's a nice thing to be connected to. It's glamorous. There's beauty. There is this like majestic nature. And in a modern society where we've torn down so many of those those narratives, mm. I, I think that people, people like a fondness about it. I think the ritual points to history. Yeah. And I think in those moments when we're watching that on television or on the internet, we realise, and I'm older again, but I feel like we've lost a lot. And so it is an anchor. It's an anchor. But I also think it's a positive thing because we've had this terrific experience with Queen Elizabeth II, who was really just a rock star queen. So if you had a monarch again, if I was the Republican movement, I'd be waiting for a time when there was a monarch who wasn't so popular and not... But I think William and Kate will be wildly popular as monarchs. Let's see. Who knows what the future brings? But look, I do think I do think the Republican movement in this country will have problems getting people interested in this when really there's nothing wrong with it and the sentiment towards the monarchies. Whilst I don't think Australians see the British monarch as the enduring embodiment of our national unity, mm. it's still an anchor to history and to, for some people at least, those values and tradition. So if we could somehow recast this as being an anchor to our tradition, our origins, we might stand a chance here. But it does seem to me, I share your sentiments entirely about the majesty, the beauty, the spirituality of the crown. And we saw this in that wonderful coronation ceremony. But clearly, and you'd know this better than anybody as the former Liberal candidate in the seat of Balmain. Not everybody <laughs> shares our sentiments, so we can't really claim that it's a symbol of national unity, even if we think it should be. That is that is very true. That's a true point. But I think that for enough people at the moment, it probably is something that they appreciate. But yes, that's right. Whether it's a symbol of unity, I don't know. In this special series of Watercooler podcasts, we're attempting to do something big to define the values that unite Australian Liberals in the 21st century. The We Believe podcasts are a forum for free-ranging discussion that we hope will promote a wider conversation about the things we really believe in, the ties that bind us as a political movement, and the principles for which we can develop better policy. It's an ambitious project, and we couldn't do it without your help, which is why we value the support of our growing group of paid subscribers. You can join them by signing up for just $10 a month. Just go to the Menzies Research Centre website for details or click on the link in the podcast notes. One of the other points we haven't really touched on yet is that it's also a symbol of the unity exists that exists between all nations of the British Commonwealth. So we were discussing this a little bit. What does, I guess firstly, like what does this concept of a British Commonwealth mean and what does that unity between us all mean? Maybe, shall I take us through the Commonwealth? Oh, yeah, My yeah, research yeah. into do, the Commonwealth. Do, you, do your research. It's telling that I had to do research on this, right? I consider myself fairly well up on civic matters, but I vaguely, I knew the Commonwealth Games is coming up in Melbourne in 2026 because they can't pay for it. They can't pay for it, they can't get their <laughs> act together. But 
it, it stops there, right? The Commonwealth, known as the Commonwealth of Nations, is an intergovernmental organisation that consists of 54 countries, mostly former territories of the British Empire. But interesting, they're not, they're not all, right? We've had some new newbies along recently. They are, for example, Mozambique joined the Commonwealth in 1995, despite never being a British colony. I think it was French, wasn't it? Poor things. Rwanda, which was also never a British colony, became a member in 2009. Cameroon and Rwanda have joined the, joined the Commonwealth, even though they were not British colonies, but were formally under Commonwealth the administration of Commonwealth member countries. So it, it's no longer, as I think it was in Menzies days, pretty much would have been all former colonies in those days. Mm -hmm. And all of them, I believe, probably not in 1954, but at the time Menzies started writing and thinking about this, all of them would have had the crown. They would have had the British monarch effectively was a head of state. Menzies was very troubled when India became a republic because he felt that this was the end of the Commonwealth, that the Queen was the glue that held them together. Self-evidently, it was not. You now have 15 members of the Commonwealth, which we call Commonwealth realms. Thank you, Google. Which are the countries that actually retain the monarch as their particular head of state. So that's Canada and quite a few. New Zealand, of course. And they have a special friendship and bond because they actually have the Commonwealth, the, Queen as the, the King as their head of state. The other countries there agree, are in agreement that the king the, or the monarch, the crown, remains the symbolic head of the Commonwealth. So if I get through all that very quickly, it's become a union of like-minded peoples, people who generally share the same kind of values. Most, but not all of them, would be British-speaking or certainly have a very high knowledge of British. So there's that common language, common thought pattern everything most of them would have a government system similar to the Westminster system even countries like Malaysia we don't think of that as a democracy but it is it's got a very robust democracy it's just a little bit more different to ours but so is there room in this statement and this is a question having set that up for a statement that we as liberals believe in some kind of affiliation to the Commonwealth as part of the, the countries of which we got similar values blue <laughs> look we obviously have a lot of interest in having these affiliations, and but we have them anyway through treaties and national security agreements and things like that. It's really, I look at that as just an old-fashioned expression of friendship. It happens to be linked through the Crown. But if we accept that the Crown is possibly outdated there as the enduring embodiment of our national unity, I don't know that we can then say, but we'll look, we'll hang on to this idea that there's some measure of national unity that's connected to all members of the Commonwealth. It just seems a bit awkward for me, even though it's very clear that there would be, we'd want to have some sort of statement about friendship with like-minded countries with similar political values somewhere in this sort of we believe statement. I don't know that it belongs at the top as number one either, but I don't see it as sustainable really in the way that it's been articulated there as number one by Robert Menzies. What does the Commonwealth mean to you, Freya? <laughs> as somebody who was born about more recently than I. I think 
It's interesting. I would want to pick up on one of the points you made, Lou. I'm not so sure that it is obvious that in the absence of the crown, we would necessarily be such good friends with countries like Canada, for example, or New Zealand, or even South Africa. Like the friendship, I guess, that and the closeness of relationship was formed because of that Commonwealth tie. And so I think we do have to acknowledge that. But I think as we, in this new century, perhaps the Commonwealth is not the best way to express that. Perhaps it's now something more like the Anglosphere. Because even among those countries that you mentioned that are part of the British Commonwealth, a lot of them would not be the most robust democracies with strong protections of human rights and the rule of law and countries like Mozambique they've got ongoing struggles with corruption and that sort of stuff so perhaps we could refine it to be the Anglosphere and include America in that I don't know what do you think yes I'd say though I'd I think we'd be on very tricky ground if we decided to get rid of the good Commonwealth in this statement altogether Mm -hmm. on the grounds that we're not people that reject institutions that aren't perfect we look to refine them and make them better so we're not going to do that but I also think the other thing about the Commonwealth is it does something right otherwise it wouldn't be there now it's never been particularly well funded as an organization it's not like the United Nations that's a magnet for cash so it's managed to survive it's found its purpose by doing something and I think I guess any gathering any international forum at which people don't throw punches at one another is a good thing, isn't it? What would be interesting would be to know why those late additions to the Commonwealth actually joined, because I think that would probably be revealing of a lot of the modern function of the Commonwealth. Why was it so attractive to them? Yeah. It must have been. And it's ironic in the era of decolonisation and anti-British empire that you have countries in Africa signing up to the Commonwealth, which is a relic of the British empire. So... I don't know, it'd be interesting to investigate that. And look, and some of them would be wanting to sign up with China at the moment too. Mm. I mean, that's the, things are changing quite quickly in this sphere, so... It's not so much money in it for signing up as the Commonwealth as it probably is <laughs> with China. But, I mean, for that reason alone, it sounds like a very good institution to support and strengthen. Yeah. yeah. I want to go back, just another question that occurs to me, I'm interested on both your thoughts on this. We come back to this point about the Queen or the crown being the centre of national unity. Can you actually think of any country that is not a constitutional monarchy that's come up with a president or whatever who is, in effect, a symbol of national unity for anything more than five minutes? Other than dictatorships? I don't know, North Korea? <laughs> Look, Ireland has a direct, was a West, is a Westminster type of country and separated from England some time ago and eventually installed a directly elected president. I don't know whether those presidents have been successful symbols of national unity. I don't follow Irish politics that closely. Nick, you probably follow it more closely than I do. But certainly the sky hasn't fallen in Ireland. Now, that I think their system is a directly elected president, but notionally symbolic notionally stays out of politics, notionally disinterested. I think that has worked reasonably well. I think the, the, the Irish Islands is one worth looking at. I think, uh, I don't know 
I don't follow Irish politics as closely as I could, but I, my abiding impression is that they, the president is not a divisive figure. It, they manage to occupy the, generally occupy the uh, the role without c- causing too many problems. Douglas Hyde, oh, it's going back a bit too far for me, but Eamon de, de Valera from, was pres, uh, president of Ireland. Patrick Hillary was president of Ireland from 1973 to 1976. He is distantly related to my wife, so I'm obviously <laughs> a good chap. Mary Robinson, I remember. Yeah. She was Mary McAuley. These are figures that I suppose, particularly during that period of the Troubles, I was very familiar with in Britain, but yeah. none of them seem to be particularly divisive figures. So perhaps the Irish model is what we've got to look to before we completely throw away the idea. But that's a directly elected model, and I say I would much prefer a, a more minimalist mm. appointed style. By parliament, or who would appoint? Look, I there were elements of the McGarvey model in 1999 that I preferred to the parliamentary appointment model, and look, it's been a while since 1999, but that was more closer to what we do, whether the sort of the government effectively appoints the president and I just think the less politics that's in it, the more you can justify and be comfortable that the person who holds the office will not be political. Well, yeah. But I voted yes for the for that model. But you could make it more minimalist to take that out of the out of out altogether. That is then met with the response by the populists who say we the people should vote for this, and that. And that is a very hard argument to get around in a sort of, in a binary sort of style Republican campaign, I think. People will say, yes, why can't we vote for our president? To which minimalists would say, because it will be safer and be, and, and don't you understand how our system works? Yeah. Well, one thing that's interesting, actually, just before we leave the Irish president, they have seem to have quite long terms. Seven. I mean, the current president, Michael D. Higgins, I see has been present since November 2011, so that's 12 years. So, yeah, I and mean, there seems to be a stability there, right? So I think the, those elections are not in the same as the federal elections, so they keep them out of politics. And I, I think it's a long term, seven years, so they, he might be in his second term, Nick, right. which, is a, which would be a good idea too. To get a he second term, it shows you must have popular support of some kind. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's very easy to stay popular if you're not a politician. Yeah. <laughs> and you look like a monarch and act like a monarch. I think that's quite an easy task, actually, if you're the right person. Before we leave the topic of the Commonwealth, if you're going to look for its evolution into some modern form, do we look to AUKUS? I mean, AUKUS is only three countries, but it is probably the greatest and most enduring achievement of the Morrison government. It's probably going to be the most enduring and important achievement of Boris Johnson's government and President Joe Biden. In my, but anyway, it's, it, we, it's enormously important, and it, it is in the end uh, the old friends coming together, the English-speaking countries coming together, and, and an evolution of what I think happened, as we remember, Lou, in two thousand and one with nine eleven, when. We were in a very sort of internationalist phase at that stage, but we instantly came together. There was a, a coalition of the willing, I think we called it, between essentially between Britain, between Tony Blair, between John Howard and the first President Bush that ended up in doing some things we might now think wasn't so smart in terms of Afghanistan and Iraq. But 
the point was we recognised at that time of enormous threat when we felt this almost epoch moment where a training of the epoch or training of the era when we suddenly felt this threat from Islamism that we had to get together with our friends. So that's still there, right? So do we need to build in that kind of sentiment along with the Commonwealth? Yeah, so that's not the Commonwealth. The America's not the Commonwealth. And yet I personally feel that a lot of our political culture, both now and even, funnily enough, at our foundation, at Federation, was driven to some extent by the American Constitution and American political experience then. I think we're more America than we think we are. I think monarchists and a lot of liberals like to think that it's all Westminster. So I think, yes, there's absolute room for that and for drafting that sort of sentiment about shared values amongst English-speaking countries into a, we, a modernised, we believe, statement. But that that it's not the Commonwealth. And that's because America is so central in that and part of our history, really. We have a written constitution like America. We're a federation like America. We have expressed political limitations around property and religion and other things in our constitution that are like America, more like America. We don't have a Bill of Rights, but we're much more American than we think. We have to include America. And I think there's probably among those countries, there's a shared spirit, I guess, in a way. I don't know if that's the right way of putting it, but there's this, there's a commitment to freedom and then there's a commitment to the rule of law. And I don't think you see that in other, in a lot of the other members of the Commonwealth. And it does seem to be a particular sort of Anglo sphere thing. Like in America, liberty is central and in Australia as well. The Liberal Party was built on freedom and aspiration and that is central to our national identity. So I think maybe if we were thinking about how to update this statement, we could look at including some sort of phrase about we stand, we need to stand in unity with other countries that share our similar commitment to individual liberty and aspiration, something like that. Yeah. What do you think, Nick? I'm just thinking about while we're on the subject of, while we're on the subject of the United States, which... Should we ask the question, what is the symbol? What is the binding force in the United States? It's always been a sort of strange miracle that this vast country with several different stages of settlement of different kinds, which then had a massive influx of people from all over the world quite early on. And yet it's America. You go there and whatever else people grumble about, there is generally except in the most woke corners of California or something, a, a sense of being American. And many people have looked at this. I've John Steinbeck's book, Travel with Charlie, where he drives around the country in his van with his dog trying to find that. It's not a perfect book, but I get that idea that you're trying to find out the glue that holds us together. And I think I know what that glue is. It's citizenship. It's the idea of citizenship, which is... A... Which I think it's... The constitution and its entrenchment, I think that's central to it. The UK has a constitution, but it's not entrenched. It's not written and it can move and it's just statutory. I do think that magnificent American constitution, which was based on the Declaration of Independence, which of course was all based on the 1689 Bill of Rights in England, 
when England became a constitutional monarchy in theory for the first time, that it has all come through. So it's all come through there. And I do think the Americans, that all occurred in America in time when they were incredibly well educated on these political matters, why these freedom and liberty and these political values mattered and how it all worked and how it could stay together and improve. And so they entrenched it and they believed in it. And you write citizenship is core to that, Nick. Yeah. And I do think that's what makes it magnificent. And they continue to celebrate it. I, my thinking on this has been accelerated by reading Victor Davis Hanson's book, The Dying Citizen, which came out two years ago. How The Dying Citizen, how progressive elites, tribalism and globalisation are destroying the idea of America. And he sets up the idea that citizenship is not natural, like the natural state of human society for most of human history has been tribalism, one tribe against another. But the idea of the citizen, which begins to emerge in Greece, ancient Greece, but it comes to its its final formation in, I think, yeah, both here in, and in America and in Australia. Yeah. The thing that holds us together is we have a higher loyalty beyond tribalism that we may have our different ways and whatever, different origins, different ethnic backgrounds, different religions or no religion, but we are all bound by number one Australian citizenship and this is what you see every year despite the opponents on January 26th you see this great display of people standing up more around the world and as holding up, I think you have to hold up your right hand, don't you, and say, I pledge allegiance to Australia, whatever the words are. And they're proud to do it. And I was proud to do it as a citizen when I became a citizen in 1991. So that's it, right? Whatever else you and I have, whatever our differences are, and Freya, we're all Australian citizens and we count that as a very important thing, don't you? Yeah, definitely. I think, though, I think we, we do need to do more. It actually, it's what you were discussing before, Lou, promoting that and making that citizenship of Australia a central feature of national identity. So I grew up in Canada and every single morning we would have to stand up, face the flag and sing the national anthem. And we had a whole subject called citizenship which was actually about how do you be, a, how are you a good citizen? What does that look like? And I think we don't do that as much in Australia. And if we are to move forward, especially if over time we, we come to the conclusion that as a nation, we want to move on from the crown to some other sort of constitutional head of state, retaining that sense of citizenship and being part of our nation is something I think we have to be really intentional about. Yes, and to that I would say that means we can't divide into tribe. And there is a push at the moment in the academy and in some, in, with amongst some of our institutions to re-tribalise us along race, gender, and all sorts of other things too. That that is a swing back against the sort of broad, good direction that has been the case really. I think Nick, since the Magna Carta all the way through the history of Britain and then through American history, and then we were incredibly lucky beneficiaries of that. I think you're right, citizenship, yes, cool. I'm glad you brought up the Magna Carta because I think this is, we should mention this obviously before we leave this section. I'm sure it will come up elsewhere in these discussions because the Magna Carta for me is that sort of moment at which we, and we as the inheritance which we inherit, we, we sorry, the 
by we I mean our inheritance, is the idea that the monarch is not above the law. The law stands above everything. It was a moment the noblemen came together and sort of made the king or the queen king, I think, that's my, how bad my history was, sign a document that said you will obey the law the same as everybody else. And that switch is crucial because then you go to the point where we're all equal. We're all of equal moral worth. No one stands above the other. And that is crucial, I think, to my understanding of... The whole of history, Western liberal democratic history from that point is about the ceding of power by the, from the monarch to the people via the parliament. And it just kept improving and improving at all stages. So that's the story. That That's our inheritance. Yeah. And there was a lot of bloodshed in that improvement and there were a lot of fights on the way. It wasn't easy. So I think in this era, we've become pretty complacent about that history and about the struggle. And as you've alluded to before, Nick, the suggestion that actually if you look at all of history, this is quite unique. It's not normal. And so we have lived through this sort of era where that idea of equality, and particularly in Australia, that's an egalitarian idea that we have fixed around equality, is precious. And we need to not take it for granted. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful note to move into the final section of our podcast on. And that's if we're thinking about a revised version of this We Believe statement, how should we deal with statement number one, the crown as the centre of national unity and unity with the Commonwealth? I guess there are really three options and we're going to put it to you, Lou. It's a, it's a hard one to answer, but do we retain it? Do we revise it? Or do we reject it? What are your thoughts? I, we can't retain it in its current form because it just it's too jarring for too many Australians so we couldn't appeal to a sufficient number of people, even though... Amongst our liberal family, we have people who would absolutely still believe in that and want that to stay. But I know I don't think we can retain it. We can revise it, but it needs a pretty big chop, I think. Unfortunately, I, I, does that mean Lou? We're going to there's bits we're going to chuck out. Are yeah. we just going to just put them in their right order or right place or right context? It needs a significant redraft. I do like the idea of a clause that deals with a national unit, a symbol, allocating a symbol of national unity and also something that 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 acknowledges the unity existing between other nations. But I think going forward to modernise it for this century and to for it to appeal to most people, we do need to significantly redraft it and take out the guts of it. The guts of it. What do you think, Nick? <laughs> it's going to be okay. I think clearly I agree it has to. It's in the revise or redraft bucket, this one, for all the reasons we've gone through. It, it has dated and the country's changed to some extent. But I think we've got to be very careful in doing so that we don't lose those profound truths embedded in there and the insights into why this is such a successful country and we are one of only two continents on earth that has never had a civil war, the other being Antarctica. So there we go. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think uh, my thinking on this has probably shifted over the course of our conversation, which means it's been a great conversation. And I hope that everyone listening has also found it equally fruitful. I would probably be definitely in the revised camp. I think we need to, like Nick, 
I think we need to retain the spirit of the phrase and the sense of unity and national identity and the links to other Anglosphere countries is really central. But I think we need to continue this conversation around what does a head of state look like in the 21st century. I'm very grateful for Louise coming in to help us out with this one. It really was fun when we needed <laughs> It's been awesome. More intellectual heavy lifting than we could do. So thank you, Louise, very much for joining us on this one. It's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. We'd like to bring you many more, of course, and you can help us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater, and thank you for listening. And above all things, we want a civilised nation. Not a nation in which every political issue is determined in terms of pounds, shillings and pence. Not a materialistic nation, but a nation that tunes itself to high endeavour and to great ideals. A civilised nation.